thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. I want to start with a question. What do you think is the worst sin? I'm serious. Think about it. If you had to draw up a list, what would be in the top spot? What would be number one? The worst sin? Murder? Sexual violence? Racism? There's a lot of talk of that just now. The Bible, I think, would would hint at a different answer. Pride. Because in so many ways, pride is the sin that lies behind all other sins. So if sin is, is booting God off the throne of the universe and setting ourselves up as God so that we can do what we want, well, what lies at the heart of that? It's the belief that we know better than God. And and what is that? Well, it's pride. If sin, as uh, the book of 1 John says, is lawlessness, breaking God's law, then what lies behind that? Well, it's the proud assumption that, that I know better than God. When I am proud, I have a great trust in myself and great confidence in my own ability. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus that Paul has been explaining in this book of Romans, the gospel kicks pride out like nothing else. Here's the recap of Romans so far. Paul has shown us that all of us have fallen short of God's standard of holiness. In our pride, we, the human race, have rejected God and suppressed the knowledge of the truth that that he is real. As God gives us over to the consequences of rejecting him, this leads to an ever greater cycle of sin. Now, the the moral law of God, as we find it in, in the Bible... It diagnoses our sin problem. It shows us what's wrong, but the law cannot help us. And very seriously, we cannot help ourselves. We cannot excuse ourselves. Paul has shut down every possible excuse we might bring. We cannot change ourselves. And so, says Paul, unless God intervenes, we will all one day stand before God as our judge, silent and accountable. Not a word that we can say or a thing that we can do to justify ourselves. The law of God cannot provide a solution. We cannot provide a solution. But the glorious news of the gospel, the message Paul is explaining, is that God has provided a solution. He has sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to deliver a fully righteous life and yet to die on a cross. At the cross, God punishes the sin of his people In his son, Jesus takes our guilt so that all who will turn to him and trust in him and receive this gift from him will be given Jesus' righteous status. 
a solution that, that enables him, God, to maintain his justice, but also justify us sinners. That's the gospel. That is, as we've called it, God's right way for us to be right with him. And this is as good a time as any for you to pause and ask yourself again, have you accepted this message and the gift of the gospel? That is the thing that you need more than anything else to be put right with God and so to enjoy eternal life in his kingdom. Of course, that begins now as well with, with forgiven and renewed life and a sense of purpose and of joy. Of course, the alternative is unthinkable. To remain in your sin and face God as your judge. For now, though, having explained the gospel, Paul is going to start to help us work out the implications of the gospel for life. And here's the first really big one. Our first heading today. Number one, the gospel kicks out your pride. Even though pride is at the heart of sin, and even though the gospel deals with the judgment we deserve for our sins, sadly, Paul knows that pride can continue to be a problem for many of us, including for Christians within the church. When pride is given a voice, it expresses itself as boasting. As an aside, the imposter pride also has a dangerous cousin, insecurity, and we're getting on to him later on. For now, though, look at chapter 3, verse 27. Paul says, where there is boasting, it is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Perhaps, says Paul, perhaps if you had been made right with God by your own effort, by diligently, consistently, constantly, perfectly keeping the law of God, then maybe you might have some grounds to feel pleased with yourself. But, but that is not how it was for you or me or any of us. The real truth is that, that when it comes to being right with God, on our own we are lost and helpless and hopeless. If you have received the gift of righteousness that Christ brings by repenting and believing in him, then it is everything that Jesus has done and nothing that you have done that has made you right with God. So far from kind of fostering pride, Christianity should be profoundly humbling. In fact, it takes great humility to become a Christian. Because accepting Christ means accepting these uncomfortable truths we've been discovering. That you are a helpless, hopeless sinner who is entirely dependent on the free, undeserved grace of God. That's humbling, isn't it? So let me ask you, is your pride keeping you from trusting Jesus in the first place? Maybe you can't bear to accept or to voice the, the uncomfortable reality that, that you too are a sinner, just a sinner in, in need of grace. 
But it would be foolish in the extreme to let your pride stand between you and God. As the Bible says elsewhere, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But sadly, even Christians can still sometimes be prone to pride. Picture a man, let's call him Steve. Here is Steve. He became a Christian a number of years ago now. He knows the Bible pretty well. He can quote verses at people. Uh, Steve even has areas of leadership and responsibility in his church. In his wider life, Steve runs a successful business. Uh, His home life is pretty stable. Uh, He has some kids and, and even they are pretty well behaved. Steve looks as if he has it all together. Now, Steve would never say this out loud, but in his heart of hearts, he knows he looks down on some other people in the church whose lives and home lives are are a bit of a mess and who don't know the Bible as well as he does. And if he was honest, Steve would have to say he's lost some of the wonder that he felt when he first became a Christian. That realisation that he once had, that, that he was a guilty sinner and he had been saved entirely by God's grace. And that sense of awe that he had, that, that God would love him and choose him and, and that Christ would die for him. All of that's kind of faded. And if he was really honest, Steve would say it's been replaced by a bit of a sense of entitlement. Steve needs the boot up the backside that this passage gives. You see, all of us, whether it's Steve or you or me, or verse 29, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and verse 30, whether you have the the external markers of, of looking religious or not, all of us, whoever we are, all of us are saved only by God's grace alone. None of us made any contribution whatsoever. And by the way, there's a reminder again in verse 31 that that none of this nullifies God's moral law. In fact, the law played an important role. It it showed us our sin and and the law was right to do that. And, And now if we have been saved by Jesus, the moral law is good and it's of great use to us. It shows us how we can live to please God. Now we are his forgiven people. And so if Steve or or you or I, if we have grown as a Christian, if we are obeying God's law more and more, then, then that's good. In fact, it's essential. But don't for a moment think that you have ever earned your obedience, earned your place with God based upon your obedience. Don't ever think that you now deserve your right standing with God. You have not. You do not. There is no place in the Christian life for any kind of boasting like that. And in case there's any doubt, perhaps especially amongst the the Jewish members of the church in Rome, we need to know that with God, it has always been this way. This whole being right with God by faith thing, it's not just some newfangled nonsense that Paul has made up. God has always worked this way. And to prove that point, uh, Paul tells the story of Abraham. The great father of the Jewish nation. 
Now, we don't have time to dissect uh, every inch of the story in detail, save to say that Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that's from the, the story of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That, says Paul, is just the same principle as the gospel. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham accepted and trusted those promises. He took God at his word. And Abraham was made right with God. And importantly, Paul chooses Abraham as an example to show that people have always been made right with God by faith and not by obeying the law for the very obvious reason that Abraham lived before the giving of the moral law of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. So it has always been this way, says Paul, whether it's Abraham, the great father of Israel, or he goes on whether it's David, the great king of Israel, that's verse 7. Neither David nor Abraham nor Steve nor you nor I nor anyone else is made right with God by keeping his law. Because neither David nor Abraham nor Steve nor you nor I nor anyone else has kept God's law. As an aside, Paul knows this is so important for the unity of this church in Rome that he's writing to, and indeed for the unity of, of our church. Our church family here at Berghead is, is full of different people from different places of different ages with different politics and different tastes and different temperaments. It is my belief that Berghead Free Church is the most culturally diverse gathering that happens in our village. And that's good. The question is, how can such a broad range of people be united, be on the same page together? And the answer is the gospel. It brings us all down a peg or ten. In fact, it brings us all down to zero. The gospel is a great leveler. We all have this in common. All have sinned. All are saved only by God's grace through faith. But as another aside, let me say something about what faith is. It's all very well to say we're saved uh, by faith, but, but what does that even mean? What is faith? Well, here are two things to know. The first is this. Faith is not a work. It's an empty hand willing to receive. When we say we're not saved by works, by our acts of obedience, but instead saved by faith, some people respond and say, ah, there you go. But your faith, that's a work, isn't it? That's something you have to do to receive God's grace. But that is not the Bible's picture of faith at all. Our faith is simply the empty hand that reaches out to willingly receive what Jesus has done for us. Again, have you reached out to God in that way? But secondly, and this is important, faith is not an abstract idea. It's a concrete conviction leading to action. Here's what I mean. And actually the life of Abraham that, that Paul gives as an example will, will help us here. See, any one of us might say, oh, I have faith in Jesus. 
It's pretty easy to say that or to think that. It's pretty easy, I suppose, to, to want to have prayed a prayer that says, Lord, I want to have faith in Jesus. But that all kind of seems a bit abstract, doesn't it? You know, how can I really tell if I do believe and trust in the promises of God? Well, Paul would direct us to look at the life of Abraham again. Abraham was almost 100 years old and he was childless. Now, the specific promise that God made to him is that he would have offspring, children. Abraham trusted in the promises of God, even though, frankly, they must have seemed a bit unlikely. Well, how do we know that he trusted? Well, it was apparent in his behavior. He he took God at his word. He acted as if the promises of God were true because he believed them to be true. God also told Abraham to, to get up and, 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 and up sticks and leave the place he called home and, and go somewhere new and make his home. How do, we know we tr- how do we know Abraham trusted God, that Abraham took God at his word? Well, because Abraham got up and, and left and moved away. In other words, if you really believe something, it will inevitably affect your actions. Here too, do you see Abraham's a good example for us? Now remember, Abraham did not get everything right. He didn't always trust God as he should. In fact, he did some very foolish things at times along the way in life. Nonetheless, as you follow the big story of his life, he is clearly a man who had a growing obedience to God. And that showed his faith. In God. So it is for us. If we have faith, it will be evidenced in our lives. We will begin to act out our faith. Not, not perfectly, not always consistently, but nonetheless we will be changed as the days and weeks and months and years go on to be more and more like Jesus who saved us by his grace. Anyway, we've got a bit off piste. The gospel kicks out our pride. Secondly, much more briefly, the gospel kicks out our insecurity. Uh, these verses from uh, chapter 4, verse 13 uh, to verse 25, they're all about the promises of God, which bring us security and assurance. And we'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, but for now, let's uh, picture Steve again. Remember, he's sometimes proud because he thinks he's a pretty good guy who keeps God's law pretty well these days. But there's a dark side as well to Steve's pride. Insecurity. How can he be sure that he's a Christian? How can he be sure he'll be saved? In fact, the emphasis he places on his own obedience is is a bit troubling because he knows deep down his obedience that he's so proud of isn't really all it's cracked up to be. There are plenty of things that he does and thinks and, and says, which if they were shared publicly would tarnish his sparkling reputation in the church. And so Steve is a kind of strange and toxic mix of pride and insecurity. So how can we feel secure and confident knowing that we will be saved? 
Well, Paul's argument here is detailed and a little bit complex, so try and follow carefully. This section, as I said, is all about God's promises. You'll see that word promise is repeated time and again here. The big question in this section is, is is God able to keep his promises? Can God, will God keep his promise to save us based on his grace alone? A lot hangs on that, right? Since we are trusting entirely in God's promise that he can save us by his grace from our sin and the judgment that should follow. Paul says Abraham is our great example again. So speaking of promises, and we've talked of them a bit, what did God promise to Abraham? Well, verse 13, it's summed up this way, that he would be the heir of the world, which is really just another way of saying that he would be the father of many nations, which is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. Read on again, verse 18 now. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why, It, that's his faith, was credited to him as righteousness. So how has the the promise to Abraham been fulfilled? Did Abraham have physical children? Well, yes, amazingly he did. and, And they greatly increased in number to become the nation of Israel. And every Israelite who, like Abraham, put their faith in God's promises was justified was forgiven and and counted as righteous. And as we've been seeing now, every non-Jew too, who also puts their faith in the promises of God that God makes through the gospel can be included too. So in a sense, we are all children of Abraham, those who trust in Jesus. That's the end of verse 16. So here in the story of Abraham, we have two things. Firstly, we have an example which demonstrates how reliable God's promises are. When God promises to credit righteousness to those who put their faith in him, he means it. Abraham's story tells you that. And the great sweep of of history of the story of God's people tells you that. God was faithful to that promise. For generation upon generation upon generation. And of course it all reaches a climax in Jesus. Who died to bear the sin of everyone in whatever generation. Who has received and believed God's promises. Abraham again was not a perfect man. Far from it. But he took God at his word. And was not disappointed. Because God keeps his promises. So when you feel anxious or insecure, when you lack a sense of assurance that that God has really saved you, 
when you wonder if his promise is really enough, or if in the end your sin will discount you from God's kingdom, when you feel like that, let me say, take heart. Take heart. God says, if you put your faith in him, your sin is dealt with. Gone. The psalm, in fact, says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far it's gone, taken away. And more than that, his righteousness, that the goodness of Jesus has been credited to your account. You have been made right with God. And Abraham's story is an example, perhaps the example, showing us that, that God's promises are reliable. Or to use Paul's words, verse 23, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him. Secondly, as we've already seen in part, Abraham's story gives a model of the kind of faith that brings this assurance. Abraham believed, verse 18, against all hope. Having children did not seem a very likely outcome, aged almost 100. He and his wife's bodies were, verse 19, remember, as good as dead. So what kind of faith will save us? It's the kind of faith that believes God can do what is humanly impossible. See, we too were dead, spiritually dead. As we've seen, we, without a hope of saving ourselves from God's judgment, we, we were as good as dead. Real faith sees that we cannot save ourselves, but puts all of its eggs in the basket, if you like, with Jesus Taking God at his word, believing that Christ can indeed raise us from spiritual death, can rescue us from the pit. God, after all, is a God who can bring life from death. He brought life from the dead womb of Sarah. Much more significantly, he raised Jesus from the dead, which is the guarantee that God is able to do what he promises for you. To raise you, even you, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that is his work and not yours. So there's no room for pride. But he, unlike you, is able to keep his promise to save. And so there is no room either for insecurity. If you trust him, Jesus will do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this extraordinary news. Lord, we acknowledge that we can be proud people who want to achieve things ourselves. And Lord, the gospel brings us low. We acknowledge again that we have nothing to contribute, nothing we could do. And yet Jesus has done it all. We are profoundly humbled. 
And yet, Lord, we thank you that because Jesus has done it, we need never feel insecure. We thank you that his grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that we have a a sure and assured place in your family for all eternity. If only we trust in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.